Now I'm on. Now I'm on. Hey, did you notice who the drummer is today? <laughs> Ezra Lobdell's up there. First time doing anything like that, and he, I'd say he knocked it out of the park. <laughs> awesome. It's good to be with you today. It's always good to be in church, but I got to admit something. I get, I get extra excited when I'm preaching, not because I'm so good, but I just, I just love bringing the word. I just, I just love it. So I'm, I'm up today. I'm ready to, ready to go, uh, ready to honor our senior graduates later in the service. We've got a slideshow for them, and it's a special Sunday for them, finishing up their studies. Uh, so we're going to pray, and we're going to dig into God's word. So join me in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the family of God, for the joy of being together, worshiping together, lifting each other up, supporting each other through the hard times and the fun times. We honor today our high school graduates and we pray for them as they move on to a new phase of life that you would bless them and use them to make a difference in this world. But we also, most of all, want to honor you today, God. So as we open up your word, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, encourage us, and challenge us to be all that you've called us to be in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Omnipresence. The doctrine says that God is everywhere. But is he? Even on a college campus? Based on the data of what happens to Christian stu students going away to college, maybe God is not present on the college campus. Or maybe it's just the age. Is God always present in our lives except from the ages of 18 to 25? Maybe I'm being too hard on that particular situation of the graduating seniors in the audience. Because when we think of the corporate world, big banks, Dow Chemical Company, other secular establishments like Hollywood, God's presence seems very hard, if not impossible, to see. Is God active in the world you live in? Or do you come to church to get a fill-up of God and then go back out into a godless world in a futile attempt to fend off the advances of the enemy lines until you can make your next scheduled return to the comfortable safety of the church. This is quite possibly similar to how the Israelites felt in 1 Samuel chapter 4, a text that sets up the situation that we will read about in our sermon text for today, 1 Samuel chapter 7. 
So I'm going to be preaching from 1 Samuel 7, but we need to first look at 1 Samuel 4 to set that up and get some background info. So a little more text than usual today. Bear with me. I think it's going to be worth it. So reading in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. Skipping to verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli, who was the high priest, was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old. And his eyes were so set that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken and he died. For the old man, for the man was old and heavy. So distressing... Was it to lose the Ark of the Covenant that when the news of it had come to the high priest Eli, he fell backwards from his chair, broke his neck, and died? Now as we move on in Samuel, during Samuel's early days as a prophet, Israel received back the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines after about seven months. They didn't want it. They received it back. But even with the loss of the ark, 
And what had happened here, the nation was not yet ready to come before God in full repentance. It took another 20 years for the people to be sufficiently humbled to turn to Samuel to lead them in restoring their relationship with God. So chapter 7 is 20 years later. The ark was captured, returned. Now they have it again. So reading in 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. The DGI lead, DG is a discipleship group if you don't know. The DGI lead is made up mostly of 11th grade boys and also includes one of our senior graduates. But the last book we studied this year as a group was the old Experiencing God Study by Henry Blackaby. How many have heard of that? It's an old one. If you're familiar with it, You might remember that Blackaby suggests a set 
of seven realities of experiencing God. The first one is God is always at work around you. This reality is based on the passage in John chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. God is always at work around you. That means that God is working right here, right now. But it also means that God is at work in philosophy classes at the University of Michigan. It means that God's at work in Dow Chemical Company or Mid-Michigan Hospital as you interact with your coworkers there. God is at work in the social settings of your softball team, your golf league, your friends that gather regularly for coffee, your college campus organizations. God is always working. The third reality, I skipped one, The third reality from the Experiencing God study is that God invites you to become involved with him in his work. God is always at work around you, and God invites you to become involved with him in his work. That means that our job then is to identify or recognize where God's working and then by faith to join him in his work. What I hope to show you from scripture today is that no matter where we are, even if we're a graduating high school senior, what age we are, who we're with, the immutable God is still Actively about his work, inviting us to join him, in, join him in it. Here are our three points for today that we'll work through. Number one, God is the same God in the past, present, and future. Number two, God is still working in us as individual followers of Jesus. And number three... God is still working in us as a church. Was anyone surprised when we read in 1 Samuel chapter 4 that the Israelites were still defeated by the Philistines even after they brought the Ark of the Covenant to be among them? I'll tell you this, the Israelites were They thought they would be invincible if they brought the ark into battle. The ark symbolized the presence of God and had been a highly visible sign of God's power in Joshua's victory over Jericho and in other situations in the past. The Israelites rightly discerned that God hadn't changed, so therefore... The ark, which assured them victory in the past, certainly would work that way again, right? 
Well, as commentator Ronald Youngblood said, what the elders failed to understand, however, was that the ark was neither an infallible talisman nor a military palladium that would ensure victory. If God willed defeat for his people, a thousand arks would not bring success. You see, they mistakenly put their faith in the ark as if it was a rabbit's foot rather than in the Lord. They assumed that wherever the ark was, the Lord was. Their faith was wrongly directed. Now, don't be confused, though. God clearly says in Isaiah 46, 9, remember the things I have done in the past. For I alone am God. I am God and there is none like me. He wants us to remember the past. He wants us to know that he's unchanging and to expect him to work in the same ways in the present and in the future. Now to add more confusion in our text to this matter, in chapter 7 we read that the Israelites... 20 years later, bring back the ark again. Get into another battle with the Philistines. And this time, the Lord miraculously delivers them from the hand of the Philistines by throwing them into confusion. What's the difference? This time, we see that there were some significant developments happening in the nation of Israel, which went way beyond just bringing the ark from Kiriath-Jerim, where it had been for the last 20 years. The Israelites are instructed by the prophet Samuel with three phrases characteristic of Israelite prophetic preaching. All three of those phrases are in verse 3, if you've got your Bible still open. The first phrase is return to the Lord. This phrase implies acknowledging, confessing, and forsaking sinful behavior. It's intensely personal, as seen in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where he says, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. So this phrase, return to the Lord. Samuel instructs them and they do it. This phrase to us today, when we think of turning to God, we might simply call it repentance. The second phrase in Chapter or verse three is direct your heart to the Lord. One commentator says the idea communicated here is one of tenacious determination to remain faithful and loyal to God. Are you tenaciously determined to remain faithful to God? 
And the last phrase that Samuel uses to exhort the Israelites is, serve him only. Our God requires exclusive devotion. And the Israelites had succumbed to the cultural pressure to worship local deities in addition to their devotion to Yahweh. So God is always working. But if we're going to join him in his work, then we, like the Israelites, must return to the Lord, direct our hearts to him, and serve him only. And I believe that those are directives to us as both individuals and as a church. God wants to continue working in us as individuals. Our text says that the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they served the Lord only. They gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. Senior grads with the Apostle Paul I say to you and to everybody, really, God is the one who began this good work in you. And I am certain that he won't stop before it is complete on the day that Jesus Christ returns. Let's turn our focus to chapter 7, verse 12. That verse says, Then Samuel took a stone... And set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. As a good leader, Samuel wants to make sure that the Israelites remember what has happened this day. And why it happened. God has delivered them from the hand of the Philistines. Not because they were in possession of some powerful ark, but rather because they as individuals and as a people had returned to God through repentance and turned their hearts to serve him only. Samuel wants to mark this event in their minds, and so he commemorates it by taking a stone, probably a very large stone. To give it some level of permanence. He sets it up. Calling it Ebenezer. Some of you will be familiar with the idea of an Ebenezer. The word literally means stone of help. But more significantly. It has become a term that refers to any kind of commemoration of divine assistance. Right now, I'm really excited about the idea of what I call Ebenezer testimonies. An Ebenezer testimony is one where you look back over your life and identify the significant points of intersection with God. Points of divine assistance or points where he reveals himself to you in a special way. 
an Ebenezer testimony. I want to share with you my Ebenezer testimony. It includes six points of intersection with God. The first one is when I was a seventh grader. As a seventh grader, I heard the gospel for the first time from a girl in my science class. Sherry Kirkland was her name. She shared the gospel with me and I thought, you're weird. But I remembered it. Five years later, right before my senior year in high school, my second Ebenezer point of intersection with God, I responded to God's call on my life to repent and follow Jesus. The third point in my personal Ebenezer testimony comes when I was a sophomore in college and I perceived God's call on my life to full-time vocational ministry. It was at that point when I switched my major. Believe it or not, I was going to be an engineer. My fourth point in my Ebenezer testimony is about probably another five years later or so on my first mission trip to Haiti. And I, on that trip, committed to God that I would go anywhere he wanted me to go. That I was his and wherever he would send me, to Haiti or to even Midland, Michigan. The fifth point of my Ebenezer testimony shows was about 10 years later. And it's the first one that happened here in Michigan. Well, it didn't happen here, but while I was living here, uh, happened on a mission trip to Jamaica. And the significance of this one's a little hard to, under, to explain, but it was where I saw, heard God speak to me and assure, assure me that all he wants from me is me. All he wants is all of me offered to him. And that I don't have to be anything more. I don't have to be a superstar. He just wants me. And then the sixth point of my Ebenezer testimony, maybe the hardest lesson to learn, happened about 10 years ago now. When my son walked away from his faith. And it was through that time that I came to a new level of belief and trust in the sovereignty of God. Really trusting, really knowing that he is faithful and he is in control. That's what I mean by an Ebenezer testimony. Those points of intersection with God. Now, obviously, I could add a lot more if I wanted to. But the idea is to be able to look back on those major intersections, those Ebenezers, 
where God showed up and did something significant in your life to show his faithfulness to you. In a few minutes, one of our graduating seniors, Marin Stevens, is going to share her Ebenezer testimony with you. But I want to challenge you right now to think about what have been the Ebenezers in your life? Can you think of somewhere around five or so significant points of intersection with God? I think it would be really cool if as a church we started sharing these with each other. You know, too too often when we say share your testimony, we hear about when somebody got saved. Well, that could have been 50 years ago for some of us. What about what God's doing today? What about what God's did over those 50 years? Let's, in our small groups, in our elder board meetings, in our casual conversations in the hallways, let's share our Ebenezer testimonies with each other. We did this in my DG group. It was awesome. Most of our testimonies that we share, again, just they just stop at salvation. Let's talk about what God's doing and how he's been faithful through the good times and the bad times. Here's one thing you'll find. As you share your Ebenezer testimonies with each other, you'll find it to be therapeutic because you'll be reminding yourself that the same God who was with you in each of those intersections of faithfulness is still with you today. He's always working. And when we're faithful to join him in what he's doing, he will continue to add those Ebenezers. Some may be big, some may be little, but he is always working. So God's still working in us as individuals. But what about as a church? Most of you know I've been at this church a long time. It's over 26 years now. I've seen a lot of highs and lows. Seen a lot of transitions. The first 10 years I was here, it seemed like no matter what we did, God just kept blessing us with more people, more money, more staff. I remember, as some of you will, one of our last Sundays at the church down the road, which the old timers affectionately called J1. When Pastor Jay did a sermon where he basically pointed out all the things we, from a human viewpoint, had done wrong as a church. Remember that sermon? The list included things like not having enough seats for visitors, not having enough parking spaces, etc. And yet, as a church, we grew and grew. And God blessed our ministry. But 
does that mean that God has not blessed our ministry in the last 15 years as we've declined in attendance from a peak of about 1,600 people a week to maybe 600 or so? Let me give you an example from youth ministry. This past January, we took a group of about 15 extreme high school students to Spring Hill for winter retreat, Spring Hill camp. Well, I remember the day over 15 years ago when we took a group of 125 students to that same kind of Spring Hill winter retreat. Over eight times the number of students. Does the change of numbers imply that God's hand of blessing is no longer upon us? I want to strongly say no. Same town, same church, same retreat, same youth pastor, and most importantly, same God. God is doing his work. It's up to him whether he decides to entrust us with 15 or 125 students to take to a retreat. My job is to join him in what he's doing with the lives that he's entrusted to me. I'm thankful for the privilege that I've had in the lives of this group of high school graduating seniors. They're not the biggest group of seniors we've ever had, but they're a group that has grown in God and served him faithfully through their high school years. I'm grateful that God is still working through our youth ministry. And I'm confident in saying that I know God is not finished working in us as a church to reach our Midland community and beyond. Yes, we're in another transition as we search for our next lead pastor. But the good news is we have the same God. The same God who convinced a Bible study group in the living room of Tom and Bev Steele to begin having a worship service. The same God who at the same time they were losing their first full-time pastor gave a small congregation the faith to still purchase a small church at the corner of Gordon and Grove in Midland. The same God who brought key leaders for key ministries always in his perfect timing. Leaders like Mike and Brenda Krupa, who were instrumental in getting the missions program off the ground at our church. The same God who filled many years early our mission goal of sending 20 of our own people to the mission field by 2020. The same God who brought 430 students to a middle school lock-in 
I'm not sure if it was the same year or not, but I remember one year where we didn't have enough counselors to talk to the 75 kids that wanted to receive Christ at, that lock, at a lock-in. The same God who helped us find just the right piece of property, big enough, in the right location, and at the right price to build our current church building. The same God who used our church body to help about 185 homeowners as we worked doing flood relief work just a couple of years ago. Changing only a little bit the words of the writer of Hebrews chapter 11, I ask you this. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Jay Childs, Miriam Azari, Marilyn Tiensu, Rod Lyon, Haroldine Daly, Jeremy Lobdell, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises. The same God who led them is still here among us, working, waiting for faithful saints to join him in his work. You know, someday, someday, I'll finally come to the conclusion that I'm too old to be a youth pastor. (laughs) But I want you to know, this is my church. I'm not going anywhere. I'll be excited when the time is right to transition from vocational ministry to volunteer ministry. I know God still has so much work that he wants to do in us and through us at Midland Free. I'm blessed to potentially have the privilege of being on the search committee to find our next lead pastor. I consider that both a huge responsibility and a huge blessing. But the same God who led us for the first 39 years of the life of this church will continue to lead us into the next phase of ministry. To him be the glory.